1: Nephi Cole and David Wilms have a great podcast called Our Mountain, in which they essentially do very much similar to what Blood Origins does in that they have very hard hitting topics that they like to discuss, especially in the policy and law arena of natural resources, wildlife conservation, and such. So I wanted to have Nephi and David on at the same time to really just have a broad stretching conversation around. Natural Resources, and State Wildlife Management, and RAWA, Recovering America's Wildlife Act, and just a bunch of other rabbit holes that we decide to get down. It's a very good discussion that is just a general wildlife conservation discussion between three people who absolutely love wildlife and love to talk about wildlife conservation. Look here, Nephi just took a monster bite of a Taco Bell. Is that a cheesy gordita? Hmm, this is though. Oh, <laughs> let me tell you a funny story about cheesy gorditas. Obviously, coming out of South Africa, I had no idea what Taco Bell is. You know, didn't know what this was. Went and visited a South African friend up in Ohio. And as South Africans do, we tend to party hard. And ended up one in the morning. He introduced me to cheesy gorditas. and. That Was the end of it like they're the most amazing things? It, 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 it like, you can't describe it, it's just like yeah. goodness wrapped in hard tacos, soft taco shells with cheesy, meaty goodness. Mm-hmm. It is.
2: I, uh, I have to share my Taco Bell story. This is a Taco Bell cup, it's uh, it's my spit cup, it's a sunflower seed spit cup, but it's dated 2017. I, uh I like to hang on to stuff. High quality stuff for a while.
1: 2017 plastic Taco Bell cup. Yeah, that's right. He's the, he's the biggest
2: hoarder, cheapest man on earth. We joke Are about you a hoarder, Dave? I'm not a hoarder, but I am a cheapskate. And if I have something that I can use, I'm going to use it until it can't be used anymore.
1: <laughs> well, Nephi is smashing food uh, since it's, where are you, Nephi? East Coast time or West Coast? He's mountain time as well. Mountain let time. him let him
2: swallow his food here. He's he's in the same town yes. I'm in.
1: Yep. Oh, okay. Cheyenne, okay. but
3: I've been in Denver all day and just barely got back.
1: Fantastic. Well I know that we've been trying to uh, connect the two of all three of us together uh for quite some time and um naturally it, it's always I don't even know what the adjective is. I, it's always going to be a good conversation when you know you've got intellectuals that are willing to spar about things that you love the most, which is natural resources, hunting, policy, and the sort of figuring out what the best place we need to be for the future of hunting at the end of the day. Nephi, I heard that you're originally a soil scientist with the NRCS.
3: Yes, yes, I am. Oh, that's that's the, uh, I'll quit tune for a second. Yeah, that was my original, are we recording? Is this a, yeah, we've been recording for a while.
2: Yeah.
3: (laughs) Well, let me tell you, first of all, while I'm not endorsed by Taco Bell, I should be. They are amazing. But yeah, I was, uh, came out of college, uh, master's of science in soils and environmental science, soil and water science. So I worked for USDA as a. As a field soil scientist, uh, you know, on an active mapping application, which not a lot of people have, you know, had a chance to do in the U.S. It was all, almost all done, but doing the soil survey of an area called the Powder River Basin mm-hmm. in Wyoming, and then soil survey of the Bighorn Mountains. And so that's uh, originally what I did. And then ended up switching um, to do, for NRCS still, you know, that kind of transition from soil science into being a, becoming a conservation planner. And then I did conservation planning um, to address large, large-scale large environmental issues, per, you know, particularly uh, working on um, impaired streams. So impaired mm. streams, watersheds, and water bodies. And I led our, uh, that program for, NR, for NRCS in Wyoming and, in fact, um, uh, was actually the lead of the NRCS's national consortium uh, that worked on those issues Uh, For some time, it's just, you know, a group of professionals that worked on it nationally. So that was uh, what I did. And then uh, working in those basically on watershed issues to address impaired waters, I worked with community leaders all throughout the state and different political subdivisions and leaders from BLM and Forest Service and industry and all these other places. And it kind of put me in a unique spot where I I met a lot of people and the former governor of Wyoming, Matt Mead actually invited me to come sit down with his staff and uh then hired me as a policy like you know one day invited me to lunch and i sat down with the policy team there and they said yeah we were going to work on this energy strategy that says you know you can have develop you know you can you can be environmentally responsible in the way that you do energy development and if you do that you can have a pristine environment and energy and i said well that makes a lot of sense to me that's kind of what i've been doing with nrcs they said, yeah, we know. That's why I want you to come work on this for our office. And that's how I ended up moving from being a, you know, an NRCS career guy for 12 years uh, to an absolutely strange place, which was working in policy.
1: And right now you work for NSSF.
3: I do. Um, you know, my day job, I'm the Director of Government Relations and State Affairs for the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is the Firearms Trade Association of America. So we represent the 9,000 entities who – Make, move, or sell you know, firearms and related components. So it's everybody from Federal Premium Ammunition to Vortex Optics to Gunworks to Shields to Cabela's to you know, all the entire professional side of the outdoor industry related to hunting and the shooting sports. Mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm. actually who I represent. Um, you know, Mark that. Oliva. Oh yeah, Mark's my guy. Mike's uh, go. I talk to him every day.
1: Good. Dave, I'm, I'm assuming based on that reaction, you've uh, heard the introduction to Nephi multiple times. Well,
2: I feel like it gets longer and longer. So I, I thought I'd catch, catch a quick nap while he went through
1: his background. I'm sure he'll do the same. No, I'll be, I will be—I can be brief. <laughs> Dave Willems, you, where, uh, what, where are you from and, and what do you do
2: now? Yeah, so I'm also in Cheyenne, same place Nephi is. And uh, I, I actually, now I work for the National Wildlife Federation. Uh, lead our, our public lands work and uh, work closely with our uh, sporting program our and our uh, Artemis sportswomen's program. And uh, I've been doing that for a few years and before that I was with Nephi at the governor's office and then spent about a decade in uh, government and private legal practice um, representing state wildlife agencies, landowners, and you know, all sorts of stuff on natural resource issues. Uh, and to pay my way through law school, I always joke, I so I have an undergrad degree in wildlife management, uh, and I paid my way through uh, law school, meaning I paid for the books in law school by work, doing field work uh, hmm. and uh, in on small mammals um, out in the same kind of area where Nephi was doing work as a soil scientist in the Powder River Basin.
3: Yep, I came to I came to hate the animals he studied. That's one hundred percent true, because Dave was studying prairie dogs, and I was digging holes. In uh, prairie dog towns, full of prairie mm-hmm. dog crap, every day in that, like 110 mm-hmm. degree weather, while uh, while Dave was out there counting them.
1: So, so you guys together have put together a podcast that um, is a very unique podcast. Uh, you know, I feel like the podcast space is very, very, very saturated, uh, but it's saturated with the typical. We're having this guest on. We're going to talk about this guy and his life and who he is and yada yada yada. Versus having what we're having right now, which we're about to have, hard-hitting dialogue, amicable at times, hopefully most of the times, but really discussion-based um, discussion-based dialogue that allows us to talk about issues that we love, and that's what you guys have decided to do.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. We uh, and Nephi, I'll talk about it a little bit, I'm sure, but when we were at the governor's office, we were listening to all of these podcasts, these hunting podcasts, and we like hunting podcasts as much as anybody else and hunting shows as much as anybody else that, that, that hunts. But we started to listen and we were recognizing that, that we were hearing a lot of the same things over and over again, but we weren't hearing the why. We weren't hearing, you know, we're, we're hearing the hunting stories. We're hearing the experiences that people are having in the field, but we're not hearing the stories about how we get to the point that you're allowed, that you're able to have those stories
0: the mm-hmm. law
2: and the policy and everything that goes in to being able to go on that hunt or the challenges that we faced with protecting our hunting heritage that sort of stuff we weren't hearing that about that a lot in a deep level so we thought we'll test the waters we'll dip our toe in it and see is is are there people out there that are interested in listening to a a pretty in-depth sometimes wonky discussion about uh, some of these more nuanced policy issues uh, and-, and the answer to
3: that is no, nobody's interested in that, but we decided to do it anyway. And like my story is a little bit different than Dave's. Dave gives a very uh, eloquent story about it. And what I'll say is we would sit around, we listen to podcast a, we'll just call it podcast a, we'd sit there for the next, you know, at lunchtime going, how did those guys screw that up so bad? That is so ridiculous that they said that I was like, where in that AG double mm-hmm. hockey sticks, are they getting that information? It's wrong, you know. And so then we're like, you know, that's my phone, I'm sorry. Put it on. Taco Bell. <laughs> can't oh, figure I'm out technology. A I'm a disaster. So we uh so we ended up uh you know complaining about everybody else's podcast, and then Dave was like, We should do a podcast. And then we you know, Mike McGrady was like, "Hey, yeah, you know, we I was like, Well, it can't be that hard, can it? You know, <laughs> those <laughs> people, you know. So then we went we went to lunch. At Dave's favorite uh at Dave's favorite place to eat lunch at Little Phillies. So we go to Little Phillies, we're sitting at the at the lunch table, and we start writing down what you still hear today when you start the Your Mountain podcast. We literally sat there and we came up with, you know, that that you know intro spiel and then uh and uh and the name and kind of the idea and like that all happened within about fifteen minutes and then we had some uh pierogies.
2: We literally wrote it on a uh, napkin.
3: We did it on yeah, a napkin. Then we back. started
2: in a in a dive restaurant, uh, writing writing out the idea on a, the back of a napkin.
3: Yep. And then we went back to the office, and asked our our boss who. So we were, we answered to the chief of staff. You know, the governor, yes, but the chief of staff, and uh, chief of staff is her name is Carrie Gray, and right now she's a justice on the Wyoming Supreme Court. And wow. So, so we go ask Justice Gray. We're like, so uh, <laughs> we kind of want to do this podcast. And she just says, what's a podcast? And we're like, oh, well. my gosh. And so we had to kind of explain that to Justice Gray and that nobody listens to these things anyway. And she says, well, I'll tell you what you guys can do it, um, but you can't tell anybody where you work. And so that's 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 how it ended up. And so for the first you know, big span of that podcast, we were actively – senior policy advisors on natural resources for that, you know, the governor of the state of Wyoming doing this janky podcast mm-hmm. you know, as Nephi and Dave. Mm-hmm. So it was, um, and we just, you know, kept doing it because it allows us to stay in touch.
2: Who we later, by the way, had the governor on uh, on our podcast after he was no longer the governor and had a big discussion. And he found out then that we were, we had started this while we were working for him. And he's like, well, it's a good thing. Justice Gray didn't let me know. Cause I would have shut that thing
1: down. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She, he's like, I, that ne- that.
3: I never would have let that happen if I'd have known about it. So it was a, you know, it's been really an, it's been good. It's been a lot. It's allowed us to maintain our friendship. You know,
1: mm-hmm.
3: we worked together for so long on so many challenge. You know, really challenging issues. I say that mm-hmm. all the time, but they were tough. And and mo- a lot of that stuff. You know, it's still. I don't want to say it's proprietary, but there's a lot of discussions we've had that are you know very much you know, uh, private and sensitive in nature that, you know, we're never going to share, but like working together in that type of environment, we just, you know, I've built an amazing amount of respect for Dave and we might joke with each other on the podcast a little bit. And we do have kind of a shtick on the podcast. Um, you know, we each kind of out of yeah, your role yeah, exactly. yeah, and you just, you just drop into those niches, I'm but sure the reality you that is too,
1: right, Robbie, you got that. Well, I've got the, because I'm, you know, Dr. Kroger, the professor of the science, and Cody is the simpleton who just says, stop using big words to impress people. Let's just get to the heart of the matter.
3: Yeah. Well, and the reality is that uh, just a huge amount of professional respect for Dave. And Mm -hmm. and, uh, I'm lucky enough that Dave and I actually do end up in many of the same circles still, because we were both lucky enough to end up representing nonprofits that work in areas that we care deeply about, but that also interact with each other. So um, the nonprofit that I work for, we're the largest funder of conservation um, in, you know, arguably, for sure, in the United States of America. And
1: NSSF is the largest contributor to conservation. That's a, a billion, lie. Meantime. Over a billion dollars a year. That's a lie. Over a billion NSSF thousand. does not give a billion dollars to conservation. Our members do. And so, if
3: you want to know who we are, we are—we're for sure a billion dollars a year, one hundred percent for sure.
1: And, and so the my
2: organization, by the way, well, before you say that, my organization is the reason why they do that.
1: He yep. likes to say that too. We so well, here's here's the thing about, uh, and I'll be honest, I you know my day job is outside of this industry, a long way outside of this industry, and I deal with NGOs, and one of those NGOs happens to be a wildlife federation. And I was surprised that Dave works for National Wildlife Federation. Because on the outs you know, from the outside looking in, National Wildlife Federation probably not a an a outward facing pro hunting organization. Uh, true or not true? Uh Let's just say it
2: depends. So let me tell you about the structure really quick. So I, no, I appreciate that because I get you sound that all like the time. a scientist. It depends. I, I get that all the time, and here's why: because we're a we're a federation system. So what we have is we have the National Wildlife Federation, and then we have Correct. state chapters. chapters state feder- state autonomous chapters. They are, yep, they're completely autonomous. They actually set our Correct. policy. We have fifty three state chapters around the country. The majority of those state chapters are hook and bullet based chapters. Hundred percent. They are hunting based. And because of that, a lot of our policies, because the other half aren't, those two cohorts come together every year at our annual meeting and they set our policy. And so our policies uh, tend to be sort of in the middle. Right. They're very in the middle. But as far as membership is concerned, if you go by pure numbers, we probably have more members that hunt than about any other NGO in
1: the country uh and so why then so why then NW as a as a national organization i, I don't know I, I don't have any facts to base to base this on it's almost just a feeling or from my interactions that NWF is not somebody that stands up and goes we're pro hunting um we're not out there the way
2: one hundred percent hunting organizations are. We're a big tent organization with a lot of priorities and a lot of interests in a lot of places. We're in communities in in very urban areas working on projects. Mm-hmm. We're mm-hmm. in suburban areas. We're also in rural areas. We're very, very big tent. And so we do a I lot guess of the things. fact
1: because they're autonomous, right? Because the chapters are autonomous, you almost can't take a position because then your position would be it may be with half of your chapters, but it could be against the other half.
2: No, we can take a position. For example, we're on uh, we're on this organization with with Nephi's organization called American Wildlife Conservation Partners, which is a, we a, for which is an organization, a, a loose association, affiliation, whatever of of dozens of hunting organizations from around the country. Okay, we're. We're very active members of, of that organization. Uh, we work with the hunting community, the others in the hunting community on everything. In a lot of cases, we can actually serve as a bridge between the hunting community and other parts of the conservation community and help bring that together. And right. we're serving that role in some ways on, on uh, there's a bill in, in Congress that's introduced, had its hearing, came out of committee a couple weeks ago, uh, this um, Recovering America's Wildlife Act
1: yeah Rawa yeah
2: Rawa. I mean that is something that we've been I know Nephi's organization has been very involved it with, um, but we've been in in a lot of instances we've been a bridge between some uh, some of the hunting organizations and some of the other conservation organizations and trying to help uh, with others we're not We're not alone in that but with others we're so we like to think of ourselves as the radical center. We can work regardless of who's in the White House, regardless of who's in Congress. We can work with anybody to advance conservation objectives that benefit not only hunters and anglers, but other conservationists around the country. Because if it's good for conservation in general, it's going to be good for hunters and anglers. 100%.
3: I think think that Dave's organization, I think unfairly, suffers from the same issues that plague many organizations and people in today's political world. There's this assumption that you have to choose one side of this fence. Exactly. There's this assumption that, oh, you're, you're a conservation guy, like, then that's what you are. And then it's almost like an outdoor recreationist, you know, saying like, well, you, you're a hunter, like, yeah, I'm a hunter, but you know what else I am? I ride mountain bikes, I canoe, I'm a climber, I like to ski, you know, these are, I, you know, these are all things that I do. You, you can't pigeonhole me into one area. And, and that's the reality with people who are members of NWF and with what they do is just, just because you care about thing A doesn't mean that you're not doing thing B and i think that as dave you know rightly point out you know most of their members you know, they they if you were to count their members um and just sheer numbers they would be the largest hunting organization you know in in you know represented organization in the world they're far bigger than anybody else and so mm-hmm. you
1: know and how I'm big is NWF dave
2: we have about um well, don't quote me on this because the numbers change, but I think it's roughly oh, so. six million members and another two million wow. uh, through our affiliate network, so a total of about eight million. Wow.
3: so yeah, they, they, they have a lot of clout and you know, and they've been around for a long time, as, as Dave started to say, I mean, when so I represent you know manufacturers you know in my day job, which we' not, I'm not representing you know, I'm not speaking for that here. we're speaking for the podcast, but in my day job, yeah, we, that organization you know, the, you know, firearms manufacturers, you know, sales points, they, uh, you know, the reason that Pittman-Robertson exists is because there was a coming together of 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 Dave's group who suggested that we need to find a way to fund the future of wildlife, and then our members who said, you know what, we agree, and let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's, let's create a, That let's use this tax for that, the Pittman-Robertson yeah, tax it, that you all
2: Yeah, I mean, it actually was. The whole conservation and hunting community from around the country came together uh, in 1936. I mean, at the behest of President Roosevelt said, we've got to address this wildlife crisis at the time. And my organization Mm -hmm. was formed out of that to try and be Mm -hmm. this big tent voice for the entire conservation community. And the first charge was getting the Pittman-Robertson Act passed. So like this conference happened at the behest of President Roosevelt and my organization was formed and tasked with, let's get this thing passed. Um, So when I, when I joked at the beginning a little bit that, you know, Nephi jokes that his industry paid for it all. And I said, well, you pay for it all because we got the law passed for you to pay for it all. And so we're we're all in this together and have been for a long time. There's a ton of history between, you know, with the organization and, and, and all of these
1: organizations working on these issues. You mentioned rawa is anyone against rawa like it, 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 so yeah um amazing yeah yeah
2: there are people against it and there are different reasons why um you know i i think
1: th- there for those that may not know the, the the general audience is listening to this and go what the hell is this guy what is Rawa? what are these guys talking about can you just give a brief like what restoring the, yeah, so recovering uh, America's, America's Wildlife Act. Act. Yeah, recovering America's Wildlife. Yeah, Act. this
2: was a, a, a genesis that came um I don't I can't even remember how many years ago now. Like this idea formed out of a blue ribbon panel that was started by the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies and uh and and others, right to say how are we gonna we need more resources for state wildlife agencies to manage all wildlife. We're all tasked with managing all wildlife, not just hook and bullet species, not just the ones we hunt and fish. Right now, hunters and anglers pay for, for virtually everything. And those dollars get spread thinner and thinner as we have more and more challenges. So it's how do we get well, money to pay for those other species too? I think Nephi would have
1: better statistics, right? Isn't it like thirty percent now, Nephi?
3: Uh, of uh, so the your funding for for you know game and fish agencies, and that's what I what I refer to when I talk about this, you know, the funding you get. You're getting it's a roughly it's just very rough 50-50 mix between the Pittman Robertson funds that are coming in and then sportsmen need to take heart in this so some so an individual sportsman so when you buy a license you've, you're matching that pittman robertson contribution so what you have is the individual sportsman bringing in those license dollars and then you have the industry which you know as sportsman you're paying for that too in part but you didn't know it you know because mm-hmm, that excise mm-hmm. tax when you buy a rifle or a cartridge or something like that 10 11 of whatever that is 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 uh you know it that's you know, that tax is gonna to go to the to the treasury. Then that treasury the treasury farms Pittman Robertson back out to states through a formula funding methodology. What that means is they wanna make sure one state doesn't get everything and one right. state doesn't get nothing.
1: So everybody's gonna get and what's the formula? It's number of license sales, land mass or land area. Yeah. And what's the third one? There's another one.
3: I think I think you've got the basics right there. And then okay. what you and the, but then No state gets more, I believe, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, if you remember, more than 2%. And no state gets less, I believe, than a half a percent. So that way, um, you know, you don't get these massive states, you know, having all the Mm Pittman-Robertson funds and and the little Mm -hmm. states getting none of it. So that's how that Pittman-Robertson funds comes in. Now today, and this is, I think, what you were alluding to, what you've got is about 80% of PR dollars are coming from non-hunters. Right. And so – even though hunters, so when we look at, if we can back up to the whole picture, hunters, you know, they're contributing the license dollars as well. So Correct. From, so, so that's where it kind of gets confusing. Uh, so y- you've still got hunters who are paying for a huge chunk of it because not only are they are buying guns, they're also buying the licenses that mm-hmm. are driving the, the match for this.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: But if you just take the Pittman-Robertson component anymore, which is just, you know, what's the excise tax? what's it coming from? It's about 80% non hunters. And so, yep. It's just people who go out and it makes a lot of sense. If you think about it, it's one of the reasons that I think it's very important that we encourage people to participate in shooting sports, quite honestly, because Mm -hmm. you go to the trap range, you listen to people shooting trap or to a three gun match and listen to people, you know, shooting, you know, shotguns and ARs and, and, and handguns. Every time somebody pulls the trigger, I jokingly say, nickel for conservation, nickel for conservation, nickel for conservation every time that happens. So there really is this symbiotic relationship. Um, And, you know, from the, from, from my perspective, it's important that we recognize both sides of that. Number one, Mm -hmm. I'm a huge, I'm a, like, I'm a conservationist. It, It matters to me. Wildlife matters to me. Hunting matters to me. The other side, I, I am an enthusiast who believes in the right, you know, to keep and bear arms. And, I think that these two things, if we if we try and separate them from one another, I think we risk losing. You know, in this country,
2: if we we risk losing both, we risk losing. Yeah, hundred percent. Can I answer
1: your first question though about
2: what rawa is?
1: Yeah, sorry, I just sorry, I, I it just there was an opportunity to because I knew he would have the numbers. Yeah, no, and, I just uh, wanted to
2: make sure that we didn't leave that hanging out there. No, you,
1: absolutely not. I'm coming back to it right now with you. Go. Perfect,
2: perfect. So you have all those numbers, and you know what I what I was starting to say is that um the the states need additional resources right to be able to manage the wildlife that they've got they've got the pr money coming in but it really it's it's hunter, hunters and shooting sports enthusiasts that are paying the bill really to for the state wildlife ag- agencies in most cases not every case in most <laughs> case to manage this wildlife and it's just not enough we have these state wildlife action plans we call them swaps that i that states have put together uh, every state has one and they identify all these species of of need, like that, that need additional resources and additional attention. And so yep. that is the roadmap for the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. So, Recovering America's Wildlife Act would amend the Pittman Robertson Act to uh, create effectively a, a new funding source for those other species that need attention by states, these state wildlife action plan species that are typically the non hunted, non fished species. And that revenue, I think the total right now in the bill, and it changes regularly, I think it's $1.3 or $1.4 billion, somewhere in that range, uh, that, would, that would be divided by formula again and go back to the states uh, to be able to manage those species. And we're talking about an investment that could increase some state wildlife agency budgets by... 30 or 40%. I mean, it, it could be mm-hmm. a game changer for for how they manage, are able to manage wildlife. And it gets it back on the ground to the state agencies. And when you ask, is anybody opposed? There are really two types of people that are opposed to this. One is the type that doesn't like to spend more money. Yep. Right. So okay. it's the, how do you pay for this in a way that's fiscally responsible? Where do you get the money yep. from? And that yep. they yep. like the concept, but struggle with the pay for. And the second is, There's a, there are people out there that don't trust States to manage wildlife. They just, they don't, they don't. And they think really the place where we need to invest the money is in the endangered species program through the federal government. And if we're going to have this much revenue, it should go into ecological services through the fish and wildlife service to put that money back on the ground to recovering threatened and endangered species, not giving it to the States. And that's where, those are the two areas of disagreement I've heard with the bill, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. at the same time, go ahead. No, at the same time. Oh, at the same time, um, I would say there's unbelievable bipartisan support for this in Congress, and the number of organizations that have signed on and submitted letters of support is in the thousands. I mean, we're this has a ton of momentum and support across the country from about any conservation group uh, that that you've ever heard of would probably Mm -hmm. you know
1: most of Mm -hmm. them have have supported this. Is raw a dollar-specific non-game species, or no, is it can be used for anything really in, on a state-specific basis?
2: It's And Nephi might correct me. It's I believe it's supposed to be tied to these state wildlife action plans, is, I think is you're the general right. idea. I, you can use it in
3: a variety of areas, and I think what's different is if you look at it's not entirely different, but the in, initial idea behind pittman robertson right, was the reason that hunters are on were on the hook for that, if you will, is because the assumption was that that was going to go to recover these hunted wildlife hunted species.
1: species, right? Yeah,
3: but but the reality is when that money comes in, like Game and Fish isn't responsible for you know Game and Fish agencies, not just for species that we hunt. They're responsible for all species.
1: Right, and state parks and all sorts of things.
3: So that money gets spread really thin. And so the Mm -hmm. idea with Rawa is, um, you know, let's, you know, creating a funding source that can be used on some of these other areas that, and then what's interesting is it's going to free up a lot of opportunity with Pittman-Robertson to improve habitat, to improve opportunities for hunter education, for recruitment, retention, reactivation, uh, you know, it has a lot of potential to reinvigorate, um, you know, participation in, you know, the culture of hunting and shooting sports, which is, you know, I think to me, it's very important. So So, so uh, you
1: just brought up quite a contentious issue, and I don't, I don't know where this currently sits, and maybe Rawa has language that will allow it, and I'm unsure if PR dollars allow it right now. Is the use of these funds, PR to funds or RAWA funds, for the for R3? So there is actually a
3: change that was fairly recent that allows so yes, recruitment retention activation is certainly something that you can use a portion of your Pittman Robertson funds for. So okay. it's not everything. You can only use a, a certain segment of it. But even in the past, you couldn't do advertising. That's pricing.
1: right. That's and right.
3: That's no longer the case. And so now, especially at the multi-state level, there's going to be some great opportunities to utilize that to bring you know to bring people in. And this is a controversial topic. Just because oh
1: yeah, and there are people that I'll say hell no to R three. Yes, and I just think that we've had one of them on our podcast that got quite. Uh one yeah. of the brothers of the podcast that you guys were on.
3: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah! <laughs> yeah <and it's laughs> number, but I'd love to have it. It's, it's a unique perspective and I'd, I'd, I'd love to expand on that for a second. I think the problem with that is this, like, yes, there are more people in America than there have ever been. And that's true on the global scale on our planet. Uh, but ultimately the, the idea like the wildlife belongs to everybody. You know, if we're going to, let's be frank, if we're going to go out and we're going to say public lands and public hands and this belongs to all of us and we should all share it, but I'm going to close the gate on you. That's a BS idea. Like that's, that's absolute. I mean, I can't say anything more than that. It's the most selfish thing you could possibly do.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes.
3: We can't all do everything we want all the time. You know, this is, these things do belong to all of us. But if we want them to exist and belong, you know, we, we have to recognize when you go to a trailhead, Matt, it's not your trailhead. It's everybody's trailhead. And you know what? Who, that trailhead doesn't belong to you any more than it belongs to a kid in New York City. And that elk doesn't right. belong to you any more than it belongs to a kid downtown. And so this idea that we, because we've been, you know, because we discovered this this hidden gem first that... No, it's mine. I'm not going to share it. That, that's that's not fair. That's not right. I mean, there's no that's there's no difference between you doing that and deciding that you're gonna fence people out of hunting. That's that's no different than some rich landowner, you know, blocking the road that used to lead to your, you know, used to lead into a piece of national forest. You are doing the exact same thing that you are being critical of other people for doing if that is the attitude you take it belongs to me i don't want anybody else like that's you know that's not democratic that's and be frank it's it's not right it's not american you know these things that that the that the north american model are built on this democratization of wildlife it falls apart when we start to get selfish with the places we do it when we start to get selfish with the tags and I mean, and, and universally, I think this is something that we have to fight as sportsmen because, you know, we do it all in our backyards, you know, go to a game and fish meeting where you live and see how the guy, how everybody tries to fence everybody else out of the opportunity. Mm-hmm. If we're doing that. If you're doing that, you need to take a long, hard look in the mirror because, you know, it's, it's, it's literally antithetical to the whole, you know, to the whole idea that, you know, that we hold wildlife and trust for everyone. And that's...
1: It's, it's you know, it's, I, I totally agree with you. And the, the reason I agree with you so whole, wholeheartedly is because I came to this country not as an American. I came to this country as a South African. And there is zero public land in South Africa. And I mean zero. Not a single effing acre that you can publicly hunt on. Okay? Think about that. And that when I came to this country and I was able to buy a gun as a foreign alien at the time, um, and go into a piece of property that at the time didn't belong to me because I was just a foreigner, I was, but does belong to me now because I am a citizen of this country does belong to my kids. And I'm able to load a weapon and experience this place and experience the resources that this country has. You know a lot of people, you know, a lot of people have questioned, and they still question like, why do, you, why do you do blood origins and why did you build blood origins?" That right there is at its core, why? in that I know what it's like when you don't have it. I know what it's like not to be able to hunt. I know what it's like. And if you didn't have that perspective coming in, those kinds of things are like, ah, we're just going to do it this way. Ah, we're just going to do it that way. Like you have no idea what you're doing right now. You're not thinking 10 years down the line, 15 down the, years down the line, when your kids are like, Hey, dad, um, why can't I hunt anymore? So that's really, uh, that's really, I went down a rabbit hole for a second there, but Nephi, you're right. Um, and, and and you know, coming back to the whole Rawa thing, the money that these agencies need to be able to do that, they you know, it, that's also tied to public access and habitat restoration and wildlife management and being able to steward these resources.
3: For sure. And that's, I think people lose sight of that too. I, heard, I listened to a podcast that we probably all listen to very frequently. Um, recently where there's an individual who is even uh, derisive of public management of game resources, you know, the kind of this idea, like I, I as an individual, maybe I can manage them better. Um, and I think that, you know, we're not giving, you know, if, if that's the case, if you're saying the agencies aren't doing a good enough job, so let's defund the agencies, you it's the exact opposite approach. From what we need to do, if we if 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 we want these things to be done better, you know, the idea that we I don't like how my game and fish or your game and fish is doing their job, so um, let's just take all their money away and I'll
1: do it myself. Yeah. Don't you think that a lot of people look at the state agencies, and maybe this is a two-part question because the bigger question here that I'd like to get your your reflectance on is: Are you a big are you a proponent of state-based management versus federal management? Number one, and two, I think that. State agencies tend to get a bad rap because someone gets on the pedestal of a certain topic and say, these these guys are doing a horrible job um, on X, yet they don't turn around and look at the rest of the alphabet that is absolutely flourishing. Do you want to
3: give states a high five before I do Dave or after?
1: Yeah,
2: no, let me – I've been sitting here so patiently waiting for a while. Go, no, go, no, attack it. <laughs> Uh but but I might take it in in two ways. Well, no, let's let's do it this way. This like the states have there are a couple things in, working in their favor. Right. Um so first well actually let me like I do want to start it the other way. First of all to your second point, <laughs> to your second point, One of the hardest things Uh, Because having represented, you know, as an attorney, having represented a state wildlife agency, I can tell you one of the most difficult things of working with or for a state wildlife agency and being the director of or, you know, in a a leadership position within it is, especially in a state like ours where everybody hunts and fishes, uh, is that everybody assumes that since they hunt or fish, they are also a certified wildlife biologist and know exactly how to manage wildlife the right way. And therefore, because they see something done differently than they would have done it, uh, the agency is therefore incompetent, right? Mm -hmm. I I think there's some of this armchair quarterbacking going on that doesn't exist in other professions because we're not as closely tied to the resources we are in this profession. Um, But getting to that first point, um, you know, I've kind of seen it for myself, right? So many of these issues, like, you know, the draw that you hunt in, you know, the mountain that you hunt on, you know, you know, your state or the region of your state. You can't know that from Washington, D.C. or from a regional Fish and Wildlife Service office. Like, you have to have the boots on the ground, building the relationships with the people and the landowners. One of the things we forget about often is that we live in public land states, but most states aren't public land states. Mm -hmm. And so you have wildlife because you have private landowners who care. And if you're going to have opportunities for the public to hunt that wildlife, you also need a a state wildlife agency or or an agency of some sort that's going to have positive relationships with people on the ground. And Mm -hmm. I think you'd find that social science would support that there's a lot more trust the closer you get to the ground. And the farther away you get from the ground, trust decreases significantly. And so a lot of wildlife management, while it's science-based, uh, it's also relationship-based. And so you have to have that on-the-ground trust and those relationships uh, at that local level. States states have that. They have mm-hmm. the people on the ground in those places. They have those relationships. And, um, you know, are they going to make mistakes? Of course, everybody makes a mistake here and there. Right? And you learn from those mistakes and you try and do better uh, by them. But uh, I will, till I'm blue in the face, argue for state uh, state. Management, state control of, Mm -hmm. and management over wildlife resources. 100%.
1: Yeah, 100%. I want to
3: piggyback on what Dave said, and he's absolutely right. You know, we have this issue, we call it the knowledge problem. And the thing, the knowledge problem is the further away you get from something, the less you can be familiar and know about it. And so ultimately getting things down to to management at the the most local level possible is, you know, that's going to get you good decision making. Typically, and this is in this way, the wildlife issue is kind of—it's not at odds with, but you know, it's it's different than the public lands issue, and at the same time, the same in some ways. And so, one of the things that's exciting about the way that the wildlife system was set up is that although it's held held in trust for everyone, um, it belong. We all recognize that it belongs to everyone. We've been. The argument is different because of the expectations that are put on states and how they manage it, that you know th- that makes it different than the public lands question. And I'm not making a whole lot of sense not right now, I don't think, but I just want to tell you.
2: Not <laughs> even a little to- bit, <laughs> Nephi, not even a little bit.
3: Yeah, so people would say right now, so let me try and make it much simpler. States have done a phenomenal job of managing wildlife resources for everybody thus far. As long as they keep doing that, There's Mm -hmm. no reason to change that system. They're doing it right. And so there are people who would come out and say, like, that wildlife should be privatized, just like there are people who have made the same, you know, said the same things about lands. The lands should be privatized, you know, public lands. But in reality, the two different agencies, whether it be Forest Service Managing Federal Lands, they've done it for 100 plus years. They're doing a great job at it. Leave it there. It's the right place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The same thing with wildlife managing, managing that at the state level. They've been doing it. States have been doing it right. They've been doing it better than anybody else. When as species have recovered, they have not recovered be, you know, they've recovered under the work of states. So mm-hmm. when you look at wildlife populations in the early 1900s, and then you look at where they are today, that's that is because of the work of state game Management agencies—they have a proven track record. So this idea that states somehow are untrustworthy—you know—kind of circling back around to that states, you know, we don't need to give money to states because we can't trust them to recover species. Well, they've recovered them all. Mm-hmm. You know? The 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 boots on the ground is at the state level. The expertise is at the state level. The biologists who know the species and know how to take care of those species and the habitats that's all at the state level. to be frank, the federal government doesn't have the capacity to do it just like if we were to say oh well yeah let's 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 give all the national force to states instead of the federal government. You run into the exact same issue. they don't have the capacity to do it right they don't have to know right. how to do it. they don't have the people to do it and so you know sorry about you know ruining your podcast with you know going down the tangent, but um states have they have the track record it's being done right
2: you know there is a place there is a place for the federal government though in you know in in the context of wildlife management and let me let it let me explain right um i'll give one example there are probably a few one of the reasons that we have such, such a successful state system is because of the pittman robertson act one of the things that the pittman robertson act did is it said state here's this money for states you you do you like you guys know what you're doing you manage this wildlife but there's a condition there's a string like with everything with the federal government there's a string attached to that funding this particular string's a pretty good one because at the time in the early 20th century we were as we were starting to build these systems and we were selling licenses state legislatures were like well we we have to build for build roads and school mm-hmm. and Take care of health care and you know all the mm-hmm. all the public services that they need to provide to their citizens. And they were robbing Peter to pay Paul. They were dipping into that fund, those resources, those license, license dollars. Legislatures were grabbing that and redistributing that away from wildlife management. So what Pittman Robertson did is say, is said, okay, you can have this, but the condition is all, all of this money has to stay in the agency and all of the money you collect as a state from license sales has to go back into the agency to fund wildlife management on the ground. You do that, you can have this money. You don't do that, you're going to lose this money. And as Neep mentioned, that money is a big part of a state wildlife agency's budget. And it's a pretty good Mm -hmm. deterrent to keep a legislature from dipping into it to fund other pet projects and things like that.
1: Well, it just happened in Mississippi. You know, when we had a senator come across in Mississippi wanting to take one of the best deer hunting, public deer hunting places, Black Prairie Wildlife Management area outside of um, the Golden Triangle area. And there was, you know, there was this little thing called federal reversion that uh, was tied to the property, which had, you know, was federal monies tied to what the, the, the property had. And if something was going to get privatized and taken back in, hmm. It's going to cost. It's going to cost. So that, and Dave articulated
3: it very well. And this is what I was trying to get at is the best way to do these things is to make sure, but you have sideboards. And so that's what the federal government did with PRs. they provided sideboards. And this is the best way to do governance all the way around. You come up with a principle, an area that you want to get to, it's a box. And you write on the side of that box, we want to do X, Y, and Z. We want to do wildlife conservation. That's what this box is for. Then hand that box to the state. Make clear expectations. They can't go outside those sideboards, but then allow them to innovate within that box. And that's why it works, because there are sideboards on it. The, the federal government is overseeing it. The, the, the wildlife does belong to everybody. And as long as we make it clear within this box what the expectations are for those states and how they work, you can hand that down to the states or other local government and allow them to fail, to succeed, to to innovate at that local level, and you get really good results that way. And that's why it works. And that's why you should leave it at the state level. Uh, mm. If you have other things, though, you, you have to be very careful, whether it's, let's talk about public lands. You can't just say, like, we're going to take these places that belong to all of us, and we're going to give them to you to do whatever you want with. That doesn't work. Why? Mm. Because you have to, because there has to be some expectation for what that box is and what that box needs to look like at the end of the day. Because it does, like wildlife, these things belong to all of us. These places mm-hmm. belong to the kid in New York City. The trailhead belongs to him just as much as it belongs to the guy who gets up in Montana and drives to the trailhead in his pickup. And so that's why these things are they're similar and yet different. And, and you know, but how, whole, how lucky are we to be able
1: to talk about them, to be able to have them? Mm-hmm. That whole public land thing. Like, you know, living in Mississippi, literally since 2003, obviously I've been out, but we have public land, but it doesn't, it's not the picturesque public land that people think about where you guys live. Okay. I was fortunate enough to come to Cody, Wyoming earlier this year, uh, for a a talk. And I was with some, some folks in the morning and they got up, they're like, Hey, do you want to come? We're going to go for a hike. I said, sure, no problems. And we just started driving. And the guy had his Onyx map. And I've used it, but I've never really used it like this. And he just drove and he drove and he drove and he drove and got to this point. And there was, it was like private road. Like we got to a road. It was like private, no more tre- And we just pulled off to the left. And we parked. He goes, we're going to walk up there. I said, what do you mean? We're just going to walk up there. And he's like, this is public. This is anybody can come here and anyone can walk up to those cliffs and they can sit there. And we walked. And we, I got to sit, I sat on those cliffs and watched the sunrise. And I was like, this, this is amazing. It's the first time I'd ever done that. Like I'd ever just driven and stopped and said, all right, I'm just going to go for a walk on ground that belonged to me. Yeah, it's unique. And I'm just glad you shared it. Yeah. I'm glad you shared that because
2: I think Nephi and I sometimes take it for granted. I think sometimes when we live, when we live here and we can just do that anytime we want to, we just, we, we can just take a pack frame up and disappear for days and not see the same terrain twice. We kind of take that for granted. And so I appreciate hearing you share that story because it, it puts it all in perspective. It, Frankly, it makes me realize how special the place is that we live and how it reinforces the fact that I don't want to leave it.
1: Well, again, it's just, it reinforces to me why we do what we do in terms of the storytelling and the, and, you know, from us, even just from us, we've just talked about state agencies, state agencies are terrible because most academics and science-based organizations are terrible at patting themselves on the back and telling their stories. And they do such amazing jobs and such simple jobs that you could just say, look, look at what you just did. Look at the amount of money that PR just poured into quail research in Oklahoma to bolster quail populations in Oklahoma. Look at the 125,000 acre acquisition that just happened in the state of Georgia because of $100 and PR dollars. And who knows about that? Probably 300 people in Georgia
2: well, and how about you know even get away from these habitat acquisitions? And I can tell stories until I'm blue in the face of times where I was working representing a state agency, our state wildlife agency, and we're dealing with a poaching case. and I've got a game warden coming in. I remember a game warden coming to my house, to my house on Mother's Day, like on a Sunday afternoon on Mother's Day because a confidential informant lived right next door to the alleged poacher. And that confidential informant is somebody I knew. And we needed to get him to my house to take his statement and to start the investigation. And this game warden spent hours on on Mother's Day. He has a young family. Mm-hmm. He had a, a wife at home with a new baby. Like, he should have been celebrating mm-hmm. her. And he was there mm-hmm. because he's so passionate about his job that he wanted to be able... While the case was hot, he wanted to be able to solve this poaching case and make sure that we, you know, we put a stop to this and that we address some of these wildlife crimes as well. And those stories don't go, don't get told either of the selflessness of some of these employees that aren't making a lot of money. Right. And
1: well, you talk about the right? selflessness, you know, whenever, and then you look at, you know, dumb legislation that's getting proposed by, You know, people that are don't have that tie-in, they don't have the the desire, the love of the wildlife. And you have these kids, dare I say kids, that are resource managers that I used to teach and teach them principles of ecological management, wildlife management, and they're now game, you know, state biologists, the turkey biologists, the black bear biologists, the you know, and they pour their hearts and souls into this thing that they love because they're doing it to sustain the resource for the citizens of that state. And then someone comes in above them and says, not going to listen to you. Not going to take your advice because I don't trust your science. You've heard that before. Don't trust your science. Holy smokes, man. Like I constantly have to say in those types of, guys, I know what you're feeling. Biologists, I know who you are. I know you love the resource. And I know, why would you want to fudge science? Why would you, you're doing the best job you possibly can.
2: You're right. I see it. I see that all the time, actually, all the time. I don't know how you, and I don't know how you take that on, because uh, there's some people that just can't be convinced, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I think I think it's fair to say that science is evolution, right? And wildlife biology is an evolutionary type of science, and that we're constantly trying to learn more. Well, and I wouldn't do better. call it
1: evolutionary. I would call it a, it, it adapts. Yeah, I don't management. mean evolutionary
2: like, and I use the wrong construct. I use the wrong word, not evolutionary in the sense of evolution. I, I just mean it's a yeah you're right. It's an adaptable science over time, right? As you uh, you you're just trying to get better at the As
1: you learn. Yeah. As you learn you adapt your science. You adapt your management. And it's and what you're working with is always
2: the best available science at that moment in time. And you're doing the best you can percent. with what you've got there. And you may, you may try some things with that best available science that you've got. And you might learn that
1: mm,
2: I should do things a little bit differently next time. And that's what science is. And so, but I think because that's what science is so many people think science should be an absolute, and I should be letting Nephi answer this. He's the soil scientist. You guys are this, you guys are the credentialed scientists. I just have the, the bachelor's degree. Right. But, uh, but it, 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 it yeah, no, maybe you should do it. I'm going to stop rambling. I'm going to say something I'm going to regret. You guys take it. No, you should. It. I want you to
3: say something. No, I I think uh, the challenge is that, that, yeah, I think science, the chance, I think the challenge for people who work in agencies is always going to be where science and policy meet. Mm -hmm. I was trying to understand. and That's the thing that gets frustrating for people is that you have when you see these social sciences butt up against the natural sciences. When you see, when you run into this thing where we're looking at data, we're looking at hard numbers, we're trying to figure out how stuff happens. And then you start running into people's feelings and people's different priorities and what people, you know, things that are outside that, you know, of, of, you know, numbers or, and the other thing to, to, you know, I would say quickly is that um, numbers are pure. You know, when you look at those things, they don't tell you what to do. And this is actually a great story that came from my, you know, my graduate work. Working, I worked with a gentleman who was one of the top guys on wolf reintroduction. And uh, he had, we were talking about wolf introduction and, and, and numbers in Yellowstone. This is early 2000s. And he said, you know, science doesn't care about wolves. Science doesn't care whether wolves... You know, uh, expand their ha- habitat there where they die. Science doesn't. Mother Nature doesn't care. Mother Nature doesn't have a a, a, a dog in this fight, if you will. What well, Mother Nature? That that's information. And then we have to take that information. We have to determine where we go with it. Because what happens here with that information that we collect, the decisions that we make collectively about where we want to go, like that's very much us. That's our morality. That's us putting together the world that we want to live in. Because ultimately, if we just quit doing anything, Mother Nature is going to figure out what she wants to do. And it might not be what we like and what we want. So the -hmm. challenge for us as natural resource professionals is to take that information that you have and then to find ways. And this is the part that can be frustrating for people that are analytically based and that are scientists is to find ways then to turn that into action. And that Mm -hmm. action requires understanding the politics and the policy and where this other guy's coming from and trying to figure out why that person is making this alternative argument. And then, you know, where's he coming from? What piece of ground does he live on that's making him try and take that other position? And then trying to walk a little bit in his shoes and then it becomes missionary work. Mm -hmm. Where for us, we now have to reach out And we have to be willing to share our beliefs and to share what we believe that the world should look like at the end of the day, with respect that he may not entirely agree. But then with enough work, with enough missionary work, with enough evangelism, we can get people around us to feel like us. And we can get the herd marching in the general direction for what we feel like the right thing is. While always respecting, we're not going to get everybody. You know, we're not. There are people who are going to have entirely different views from, uh, that, that we do about what they want the world to look like, you know, because they may not care about the world that we care about. They may not mm-hmm. want the future that we care about. And so that's where these things get challenging for scientists when you're trying to take that science that you're collecting and then shape policy and direction with it.
1: 1000%. As a university professor, if I knew what I know now, about politics and I infused it in my assistant professor brain when I first started it would have been game changing
3: well don't tell too many people because there's only so many jobs working in policy <laughs> you know when people figure out how easy this no, is it's not, not, it's not, no know. it's not it's not no it's not
1: it's not the policy job it's the Oh, now I understand why the Delta wildlife guy was so mad at me when I said this about my science.
3: Yeah, it's the the nice, like, it's challenging. And I like we, there used to be this joke when we started our podcast, how often I'd say challenging. There's all these other things, you know, because these issues aren't easy issues. And uh, if anybody tells you that, you know, somebody rolls up and begins to tell you how, their solution is the one solution that works and they've got it all figured out and how easy, you know, well, that guy's walk away. You know, you know, you're not talking to somebody who actually knows because these issues aren't easy and they, and they are, you know, they're not going to go away. And the more pressure that there is uh, in the world in terms of uh, demand for resources, whether they be space, or money or wildlife, you know, and different types of demands on them, the, you know, the, the more we're going to have to con- work on these things and the more challenging they're going to become, we're never going to get away from it. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a good and a bad thing because like, let's be honest, like you love these things. I love these things. So what else would you want to fight for?
2: I have a weird, this is going to sound weird. You just, you, 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 you said this on Nephi with, with all this eloquence and had this lot and then left it with this nice pregnant pause. And all I can sit here and think about is I want to know what brought Robbie to Cody and see if we know any of the guys that he was hanging out with. That's all I want to know. Like, I've, That's good. And then I want
3: Dave to tell about the time. So Dave started telling about the game warden and came to his house. I want to know about the time that, game, that Dave poached a bunch of elk and then the game warden came to his house um, when we were at the governor's office.
2: Man, every – you always tee that up in a way that sound makes it sound so bad because it wasn't. It, it was sounds very bad. Doesn't it sound really bad, especially oh, since yes. it was not poaching at all? It was just. It, well, let me start the story by telling you that basically the
3: guy when we were working at the governor's office, one of my favorite stories was this dude. Uh, somebody called the state police because there was a pickup truck parked in the parking garage in August with blood pouring you know, like oozing out of the back of
2: the pickup truck in oozing the out the back of the pickup truck all right so here's the deal like just really briefly, was it your pickup truck david say what what was that it was your pickup truck might have been my pickup truck so here's the deal uh one of the other guys uh that we actually ho- co-host this podcast with mike mcgrady he he worked at the attorney general's office at the time i was in the governor's office with nephi and i we had an early season cow elk tag each of us did just outside of Cheyenne uh, and the season started in mid-August. It was on private land only. And we had permission from a landowner near town to do this elk hunt. And we took our young kids out with us and we, we got on a herd of elk right at sundown. And we got ourselves, each, each of us got a cow and we broke them down and threw them in the back of my truck and we got back to town probably 11, 12 o'clock at night. And we didn't have, I mean, it's August, And we didn't have, uh, we weren't thinking ahead as we did this kind of on a whim. So we didn't have coolers full of ice. I hadn't deboned this. I just had quarters of the elk in the back of the pickup truck. So we ran to a convenience store and bought about 40 bags of ice and just packed the back of my pickup truck with ice to keep the meat cool overnight.
1: It sounds like one of those redneck spas where they put like the plastic bags in the back of the pickup and fill it with water. Yeah,
2: except I didn't do a plastic bag it was just i was just throwing the ice in the back of the pickup truck around the uh, around these elk and because i had a meeting with the governor first thing in the morning so i couldn't deal with the meat uh right away and mike had a meeting immediately following mine and so neither one of us could could deal with this meat right away so in the morning i went back to the store and i bought a you know 10 15 more bags of ice to replenish the supply cuz it started melting overnight cuz it's august right and drive and and we're in the Capitol complex and you know, there's, a, there's a parking garage where we typically park, uh, or there's street parking, and I decided to park in the parking garage, you know, to stay out of the sun and you know get a little shade and keep it cooler, and you know how parking garages work, so it's drive up the first level and there's a spot right at the top of the ramp, and so I pull right into that spot, rush in. Well, as we're in there and going through these meetings and whatnot, it's warming up, and the ice melts, and it mixes with the blood, and just it's just the blood water, and it's like a 30-yard blood water trail that runs down the parking garage towards the street, and some maintenance guy was in there and saw this and called the game warden, and the funny thing is, I I was very good friends with the local game warden. You know, he and I are very close, Uh, only he, and he's going to hate me for saying this out loud, he was out because he'd had a vasectomy that day. Uh, so he was what a story. So he is he's unavailable, and the only person on staff is the game warden trainee, bright eyed, right out of school. Gets this call and says, they are just all of these part animal parts in the back of this truck in the Capitol complex, right?" And so, so I apparently, you know, they run the plates, and and my name pops up, and and they call, and I don't answer because I'm in a meeting with the governor. So they go up and they show up to my house and my wife answers the door. And, uh, and, and the, the warden says, so I understand. I, I hear that maybe your husband killed a couple of antelope. And, and she said, no, but they did get a couple of elk. And he thought, oh my gosh, because he, in his mind, the only thing that was open was archery antelope. And he saw, I didn't have an arch, an archery tag that. Right. Yet. And so he thought, right. Dead to rights. Right? Oh,
1: we caught him. Yeah.
2: And, turns out all was good you know we finally connected and all was good and and he knew that it was they were cow elk and it was totally legal um, but and then, had, I, but then I had to go to the, the governor and and say look you might get a call from maintenance uh, and and I just please I don't want to be the one responsible for some new state policy that says you can't have a truck with dead animals in it in the parking garage because I'd make a lot of people mad in Wyoming I think if that were the policy and the governor loved the story by the way he just he was just rolling laughing he thought it was hilarious but yeah that was the you know, it was not poaching it was totally legal uh and it was just they, scrambling. they didn't
3: tell that game warden either though so just so you know like
2: everybody at game and fish
3: knows dave too and so this like as soon as people figure it out they're like oh yeah oh it's dave it's dave and they're like well I don't know what the new guy's name was, but like, don't tell him, don't tell him. So they've got this kid running around chasing this poaching lead and he's going to, he's going to just get this guy, you know, all the guys at Game and Fish are laughing because they've got, it's like a, it's like a, you know, hazing. They've got the new, the new warden trainee chasing around Dave Wilms, former, <laughs> former attorney general uh, in charge of Game and Fish is the guy that, you know, he's, he's, he's about to bust. It was pretty, it was a good story. gosh.
1: Yeah, my gosh well so who um, Cody? Uh, yeah who in in Cody Wyoming? yeah you yes. yeah Robbie what what where, who were you with up there? I ca- I came to Cody, Wyoming. I was very honored. Um, I was asked to be the guest speaker, the whatever you want to call it, the plenary speaker, whatever you want to call it, at the initial inaugural Western Bear Foundation banquet with Joe Condellas and, uh, it was brilliant. I'd never been to Wyoming and I flew in to, um, Montana and, uh, drove down two and a half hours. I drove down with, we had done, I don't know if you know this or not, but last year we did a big Wyoming wildlife Federation project. Hunters for the Hungry. I oh, yeah. raised $23,000 for Hunters for the Hungry. I'm on the board of the Wyoming uh,
2: Wildlife Federation. So I uh, I hear about that work frequently. That,
1: it, was a great, it was a great project. We love to do it. Raised a, a ton of money. Um, and I got to know Jaden Bales very well. And I'm very good friends with Jess Johnson as well. And so Jaden picked me up, brought me to Wyoming. He said, oh, we're going to see so many antelope on the way in. Didn't see a single antelope. Like, I guess, you know. Uh, but yeah, I went to Cody and couldn't, you know. It was just a ma- little banquet. It was two hundred and fifty people um, packed out the whole. What I loved about the banquet is that the average age of the person in that banquet was probably thirty-five to forty. And I was like, "Wow!" And uh, yeah, I just—I it was—it was—it was everything and more than Wyoming could have given me, except antelope. Did not see a single antelope. I can't believe oh, you didn't something. see an antelope.
2: My, uh the first there's time I brought my wife to Wyoming there, I made now. the same I I made the same statement. I said we're going to see all these antelope and uh we didn't she didn't see them for like 2 days. Did you ever see one? Cuz they're everywhere. Uh no. I mean I've well, I've grown up calling them prairie rats.
3: Picture.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, there's
1: it's interesting anyway. I right. well, I'm, I'm glad, glad I believe, you made it. I'm glad you came you out. I can't believe you didn't see any. I saw mule, yeah. I saw a bunch of mule deer. It was great. It was great. Dave and Nephi, um, I thoroughly enjoyed it, man. That's the kind of conversation I love to have, Um, back and forth, hard-hitting. If there's ever a topic that comes onto your radar that um, you want to have a discussion, because the other part of us, Cody, um, is a very good component to this. you would add a different flavor to it as well so if there's anything that comes up on your radar and you want to discuss it in a, in a more you know broader fashion let me know we'd love to have you guys back
2: I appreciate that well i'm going to throw this out here since it's on uh, uh, you know for everybody to hear we'd love to have you on ours at some point too
3: you name the place i'll yeah. be there yeah, yeah we be we've been for all you know uh this is the next episode of the your mountain podcast because <laughs> We don't have a lot of time, so you know we might beat you to the gun.
1: So, man, I you know I, I'm always honored to speak with folks about why I do what I do and why we built Blood Origins the way that we built it. You know, we are just we want to we want to have those. We think that the idea of as what you just said, Dave, and that hit home a lot when you said what NWF does is be the bridge between, uh, you said, actually you said something different. You said you're the radical center and that sitting in the middle. And, you know, from a blood origins perspective, hunting is not a panacea. Hunting is not a silver bullet. Hunting is a tool in our toolbox for wildlife conservation. And when it's done in the right manner, it has significant benefits and consequences, but sometimes it's not done in the right manner. And sometimes it needs to be said that it's not being done in the right manner. And sometimes we do things as hunters that we shouldn't be doing, and we shouldn't be putting it out there. And especially in the social media uh, world that we live in today and people don't think, because that's the thing that's really going to save hunting at the end of the day, from our perspective, is just do a little bit of thinking. You think a little bit before you post something, you think a little bit before you speak, you think a little bit before you engage someone. And you'd be surprised what happens from the perceptions around this thing that we love so much may change from that we're just a bunch of redneck killers running around to, man, these guys are actually wildlife conservationists. Well, it's been a pleasure to join you.
2: Uh, Pleasure, boys. Thank you so much. I love that we have a shared
1: goal. Till the next time. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.
0: Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination
1: for outdoor entertainment.